Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I am Tara Bowen Biggs. Danny is not with me this time. However, I am joined by a guest I'm really looking forward to talking to. Ian Johnson is a former Division I player at Davidson College. He's a five-year veteran of the European Leagues and author of the book The Bounce and the Echo, Dying to Love a Game. In this book, he talks about his basketball journey. It's intertwined with the history of the sport. It's a really revealing and I found very informative story about mental health. I finished the book a couple of weeks ago and it's just really stuck with me. And I'm really glad to have you on to talk about it today. Tara, it is my pleasure to be on. Thank you for those kind words about the book. Well, I'm going to start off by asking like the typical question that everybody is asking each other these days, uh, just to check in about how you're doing with the pandemic. What new hobbies have you picked up? Are you binge watching anything? How are things going for you? So within within the bubble and recognizing all the horror of the global situation, like my quarantine hasn't been terrible. It's actually kind of like a relief, like not to have to make decisions about what uh what I should do with my day or like what the next step is going to be. And it's been a time of pretty good self-reflection in terms of new hobbies. I've mostly stuck with my old hobbies, reading and uh, watching some movies. I think Fleabag is the TV show I watch, which is maybe one of the, the best TV shows of all time. Have you, have you seen it? I have not. No, but I'm always looking for something it's, new to it's watch. It's really good. I just finished um, uh, Shit's Creek and um, mm-hmm. I'm also like really into like the great British baking show and all the things that make you feel really good at the end of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like all those all those types of things. I'm really fascinated to see like what the world is going to be like when we come out of this. Like, you know, you talked about how, you know, we're we're in bubbles and like there's all kinds of people who are like really struggling with all of this. And there's, you know, there's there's bad things happening out there. And I I keep wondering, like, how is the world going to change as a result of this? Is it going to change? Like, you know, are we building new habits that are going to influence the way that we interact with each other? Like, I've had more like video chats with people that I don't know in the mm-hmm. past few yeah. months. And it, I feel like I, in some ways I feel like more connected to the people than, than I was before, even though I'm still staying in one place. I don't know. Is that ever, you ever think about stuff like that? I do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely like, I'm, I'm talking on the phone with, with people far more often than I had. I read somewhere that Verizon is experiencing on any given week, weeknight is experiencing two times the, uh, call volume that they experience on Mother's Day, and Mother's Day is their highest call volume of the year. So it just shows you like how, like how much we're connecting in, in new ways. In terms of um, like how we'll adapt, like if, if there's one thing we know is that that you know humans can adapt to any situation, and like anything can feel normal soon enough. I think that's a psychological phenomenon. But what the future will look like, I don't think I'm. I don't think anybody knows. And I, I heard uh, Dr. Fauci say that if if anybody says they're certain about how this is going to play out, then you can you can for sure you know they're wrong. So I think that's trying not to make conclusions is a good way to or what I'm trying to to follow. Yeah. Well, it's definitely very interesting times. So, but let's talk about your book. I. Um, We'll talk about it for a minute, but before we, you know, really kind of get into the meat of it, I'd love it if you could just kind of introduce yourself and talk about some of your earliest memories about basketball. Sure. Yeah. So my 
uh, full disclosure here, I was actually a, a, a bigger soccer fan as a youth. And so then in like eighth grade, all of a sudden I grew like six inches and um, I got cut from a soccer team that I really wanted to make and then kind of uh, fell in love with basketball. And my earliest memories would be playing in a youth league in Sharpsburg, Pennsylvania, which is just outside Pittsburgh. Shout out to Pittsburgh. Um, and then, you know, just, just kind of play the regular uh, youth leagues growing up. Got into AAU in middle school and high school. And then my uh, senior year, I left uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where I went to high school. And I played at Oak Hill Academy for a year and then Davidson College and then overseas for five seasons. All right. Well, we're going to get into all of that. But before we do, I'm wondering, did you have a team that you rooted for? Did you have, uh, you know, players that you really liked and admired? For sure. So I think... Like so many other kids of the 90s, I was definitely a MJ, Pippin Bulls guy, which has made the la watching The Last Dance almost like an emotional trip back to my childhood. It's been such a wonderful experience. Um, have you been watching that? Yes. Yourself, yeah. And it's just so well done. And just hearing Michael Jordan, he's matured so much and like he's like psychoanalyzing himself and talking about like wanting to please his dad. And like, it's just, it's just a beautiful documentary and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. There's a lot there. And I think that, uh, NBA fans are really happy to have For that. Sure. It's so funny. Like the morning after, like on Monday morning, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, subscribe to a lot of podcasts, and like there'll be like 20 podcasts in a row that are all recapping episode three, recapping yeah. episode four. <laughs> we looked at episode three. We looked at episode four. So people are clearly just like super hungry to talk about oh, something sure, yeah. of, of basketball. Uh, here in Portland, the team, the, the channel that plays the Blazers – is instead of playing, you know, the games that they would have played, they've been playing uh, like historical games or, you know, um, classic games. So there's been quite a bit of like Portland versus Detroit, Portland versus Bulls from the early 90s. And that those have been really fun to watch because that's when I really first started watching. Um, and I really didn't know anything about the game at all. So I just kind of was like sitting there watching it. And now that I know a little bit more about the game, it's been super fascinating watching them. Although I'm a little worried about what's going to happen when um, the we go back and watch regular games because all the games that they've been playing are games that the Blazers won. So <laughs> I'm getting really conditioned to the Blazers winning everything. Yeah, yeah. I said we could get used to anything before. Maybe that's one thing you like, could struggle to get used to, but... Sounds like it's a fun, fun journey back. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been cool. Well, let's go and talk a little bit about your book. So uh, why did you, what, what was your inspiration to write this book? And why did you write it now? Or I don't know how long it took you to write it. Like, when did you start writing it? So I wrote it probably six years ago, and then it uh, didn't come out until uh, last year. And so I was, I was backtracked. So when you think about um, like when like a significant event in your life ends, whether it's like a, a relationship or someone you know and love dies or you retire from your career, or change jobs, anything like that, uh, graduation, like we like, even before it ends, you start creating a narrative or a, a memory. And that narrative and memory kind of decides how you're going to uh, remember it, at least from a, a verbal standpoint. And um, not about you, but I enjoy a, a good memoir. And while well, recognizing that books like Bill Russell's 
Second Wind and My Path to Glory are like exceptions. Um, I think so many sports memoirs are basically this like glitzy self glorification coded in a kind of um, you know phony like self deprecation and, and there um, a lot of them just aren't fun to read. Most of them are ghost written, so we don't get the athlete's voice. And athletes, I think, understandably, are very guarded and they're uh, naturally very sensitive and um, they don't want to share these deep parts of themselves. And so when uh, I began writing this book, it, w- it was more of a th- uh, like a therapy exercise. I was struggling to create my own narrative for uh, after I retired from from playing basketball competitively for 20 years. And um, so like when I started writing it, it uh, like I, I, and when I went back and started looking at, at what I wrote, I definitely noticed myself trying to glorify myself mm. and like make my career out to be a lot better than it was and like skipping over the tough stuff. And um, so then eventually the, the first chapter got written and I sent it to ATM publishing, which is a, um, publishing house in, in New York City and the editor really liked it and then it was time to start going back over everything else that I'd written and like a lot of what I had written I had to just go back and flush out all the like the, the BS all the ways in which I was being like everyone all the writer the athletes who I just you know criticized for to be honest and then um, eventually my goal became okay how, how can I write a very truthful book how can I write a very honest book like how can I tell an actual story about what so many people are going through and um, I mean hopefully hopefully I did that and that's that's kind of the impetus for the book well that's really really interesting to know about how it, like you kind of went into it thinking about some of the other books that you had already read and what you wanted to convey about what your life was like I wonder one of the things that I found really fascinating about I love the history of basketball I'm super fascinated by you know, from the day one that it was invented or he, James Naismith was told to go invent basketball. Um, and you really weave that all throughout your whole book. Did you do that in any way, like to help you, like you said, with kind of like the truth telling about, you know, how you wanted to approach your own story or like how, how did the interweaving of the history come about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the I think that started as a way to like break up the like I tell it obviously in the first person, and then I think I was worried that like people would get bored listening to my story, and so so how can I make this more interesting? And I decided to start adding uh, the, these historical contexts and anecdotes and so on. And um, you know, if there if there's another reason I wrote this or decided to go ahead and publish this book, it's that. Uh, like it's a lot of what I wish I'd known when, when I played myself. And there's so much of basketball history that I didn't know. I think so much of basketball history is uh, built on like national myths and so on. And so like when I went back and started researching and discovering the game, I realized how dynamic the game is and how like since the very day it began, like no one ever played the way Naismith intended it to be played. And it just, just kept evolving and evolving and evolving. And so trying to convey that dynamic nature of basketball and you know, hopefully like younger readers might read and say, uh, you know, like basketball is not this static thing that we think of it is this eternal, like glorious thing. It's like this, this thing has been shepherded by the players that play it and by the coaches that coach it and by the uh, businesses that invest in it and just, just get the sense of dynamicism uh, involved was 
was something that was both uh, revealing to me and hopefully revealing to the reader as well. Yeah, when you put it that way, it's really like it's like a living organism, you know, like. Oh, that's 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 a beautiful way to put it. I wish I put that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I I love like facts and the history about um, invention of basketball. Was there anything that like as you were reaching researching the book that you learned that you were like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I got to put that in or something that you didn't know before that you were like really excited to share with the world? I mean, the, 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 maybe the most fascinating anecdote that's coming to mind now is the 1964 All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game, which was in, in Boston. And the NBA at the time was, you know, the, the players weren't exactly taken care of the way, uh, you know, Dame Lillard and all these guys are taken care, taken care of in today's times. And so the players decided before the game to strike. And they said, they we're going we're to play this game, All-Star Game, unless they got, you know, XYZ benefits. And the, the governors, the owners had been BSing them for, for years now. The players had a players organization, but it only had so much power. And then this game was – the first All-Star game was getting broadcast live on TV. And so then the um, players knew this, and they knew that the owners would be you know, really ticked off if, the, if they didn't show up and play the game. And so they, they basically barricaded themselves in the locker room before the game. It was like, look, we'll come out. If, if you guys meet, meet our demands and then the owners were, were furious and uh, you know, the, the TV fans in the stands were wondering like, where is everybody? Why is nobody warming up? And then there's, there's some discrepancy of like how it all ended, but uh, it, they did. end. they did go out there and play. I think Elgin Baylor was MVP and the, I think it started maybe 15 minutes late and you know, the players eventually got what they wanted, but the, that was kind of the, the beginning of, okay, the owners are going to stop bossing everybody around and then players are going to start taking what they want. And then Spencer Haywood and Oscar Robinson had their lawsuits in the early seventies. And it's just a, a fascinating transition period. There, there was so much research and I only could include it so much, but my, my next book about basketball is hopefully going to be about like the, the, the way the history of basketball aligns like almost eerily with the history of the United States from 1891 to 2019. And so that'd be like an example of like the sixties were like a revolutionary time and there's rebellion and the war and, you know, different class um, and racial divides were both crumbling and being you know, reinforced. And it was just, it's just fascinating to discover like the way history interacts with sports. Yeah. And you can just kind of look at like all of these, you know, major points in time and see how they're reflected in, you know, I don't know all sports, but I can definitely see them reflected in basketball. And I love what you said about, you know, um, how you wish that you had known more about the history of the sport. Mm-hmm. as you had been playing with it. And like, as a fan of the sport, every time I learn some little nugget, it just brings so much more appreciation for the for people sure. who are playing it and like who brought it to the point. And in your book, one of the things that you start off with is you start off um, right by uh, the Moulin Rouge and right, you start, so right. you start off in Paris. And when I was learning about the history of basketball, one of the things that struck me was how uh, basketball, because it was invented, you know, at a young a, a YMCA, was always meant to be an international sport. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're so focused in the United States on the NBA, uh, but really, you know, as soon as it was invented, it traveled. 
Like, because the people mm-hmm. who were in For that sure, first yeah. game, yeah. who played in that first game, immediately left to go to other parts of the world and share the game. And it was just like, it was immediately supposed to be uh, a universal uh, game. And like, we don't really think about that very much, you know? We don't, yeah. I mean, basketball did get lucky in terms of its global growth. That it was the James Naismith worked for the YMCA. You can see him if you worked for just like a, a regular college. It might not have had the same yeah. um, spread. But there was a, a Japanese player who was one of the 18 students on the day he f- he first demonstrated the game. So there was an international flavor already. Mm-hmm. And he was obviously Canadian. And, um, you know, YMCA is obviously a missionary organization. And so it was invented in the United States in 1891. And then by 1893, it had, um, you know, spread to Europe. And by the late 1800s, it was in many different countries. In the early 1900s, it was uh, across many continents. And it's, has been a global game ever since. Yeah, well, it was, it was neat how you uh, wove that through. But let's let's return to your story. Uh, now, everybody reads stuff, you know, through a lens, and I'm a parent, and so I often read books kind of through the the lens of a parent. And uh, you talk about your story. You talk about you know playing really competitive ball at a you know like you said middle school and high school. And then, you know, your senior year, you leave your school that you've been going to to go away to basketball school. Um, I'm wondering what you remembered about, you know, being a competitive, like, what was it like for you as a kid to be in, did it feel like an intense situation or was it just like what you knew? And so that's what, like, how do you think it, you know, I guess, affected or molded you and who you are now, you know, being in that competitive situation when you were very young? Mm-hmm. So I think the the competitiveness I experienced, and you can correct me if I'm not answering your question the, the way I heard it, but the uh, competitiveness I experienced growing up until I, until I left was, was felt really comfortable in. And I think it's because I knew what to look forward to. So like when I was in ninth grade, like I really looked forward to playing on the varsity and I used to like sit on my bed at night in the dark and pretend like I was getting introduced by the uh, PA announcer in the starting five. And I always had an idea of what, of what the next step was. And then I think if, if there's a, a shift in my, my career it would have been the year I left to go play at Oak Hill because all of a sudden I didn't, I didn't know what Oak Hill was when I left. I didn't know how good school it was. I didn't know, um, know much about recruiting, even though I was getting recruited. I didn't know, I didn't know how to, to envision and to fantasize about my future with, with basketball. And so the, um, I did, I guess I did become a little unmoored and it was just kind of like, okay, I, as before, like I was the hand that pushed the water to create the wave. And then all of a sudden, like I was in the wave and these much bigger hands were, were pushing me along, if that makes sense. And then, um, you know, in terms of like competitive and youth, youth basketball, we can we can talk about this for a while. I'm a, now a youth basketball coach, and I train um, everyone from second grade up to college players. And um, you know, people people glorify competitiveness, and like they, they consider it like the, one of the most important traits in an athlete. And I definitely understand that. And I think it's great to be able to step on the court and say, you know, what, I'm gonna go kick this opponent's butt. Or in more vulgar terms, but um, you know the the cousin of competitiveness, I think, needs, needs to be self awareness and some idea of what you're fighting for. 
You know, the, no soldier wants to go into war and say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go fire my gun at this enemy without, without wanting to understand why. And I think if there's a you know, big issue with youth sports is that we push all these adult mindsets on kids at a younger and younger age. And so if you look at like NBA players in the 50s, there was a guy in the, in the 50s who got drafted sixth in, the, I think, the 1953 NBA draft. And he decided, OK, I'm not going to play because I want to become a dentist. And like the, the kids grew up uh, much differently. And now we have, um, you know, six and seven year olds living the lifestyles that high school seniors once lived with you know, pr- private trainers and all these, these video technologies and, and stuff. And I think if if we can find a way to instill a sense of awareness in these kids and uh, also with the parents, it would go a lot way towards, you know, making that competitiveness a much healthier version. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did you, did you like playing or was it just something that I kind did. of happened I loved to you? It. Oh, I loved playing. I, basketball was once, like I love competing. And... Your face just lit up when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. Like I couldn't wait to, you know, just get home and play out in the driveway and then, um, just like we had uh, lunchtime basketball where like you just you go to the cafeteria and you wolf down your lunch and then you sprint to the cafeteria to, to play and like eighth grade basketball and the the, the gym after school and it was, just, it was just so much fun and then I, I did at times when basketball became much more serious and uh, I did I did at times even hate it so I, th- I always say like I had a love hate relationship with basketball for from the time of when I was maybe in college until. Um, I got done playing and like as a, at Davidson, like I just love playing with my teammates and when we, when we could just ball, and that was so much fun. And then as a professional, I had some years where it was just, I just, it was so much fun. And then like, I, that's all the, I consider myself a writer and so much fun is the only phrase I can come up with and I, I better work on it. But it's, it's just so true. Like fun is, it's just so fun to play sometimes. And then, uh, Getting getting rid of the I mean part of the reason I wrote the book too is to help me like process the, the times when I hated basketball, um, so yeah. So it's possible to both love it and hate it, and you experience that whole I think range so, for sure. Yeah, you yeah. you brought up your, like your relationship. You could, go ahead. No, go ahead and finish your thought. I was gonna say it's like you can like have a sibling or like uh, someone you're you're dating or something. You can like both like kind of love them and like hate them and. Uh, I think that's kind of what my experience with basketball was for for several years for a good stretch. So it sounds like you, uh, you know, obviously loved playing the game. I guess like the physicality of it, the exercise of trying to get the ball in the basket, you know, guarding. Like what aspects of it just really did you – were there any that you loved more than others or it was just like the whole thing was just the best thing you couldn't imagine doing anything else? I think the, you know, I was never like a guy who loved watching film when I was younger and uh, like some of the technical aspects of the game kind of escaped me when I was younger. As I've gotten older, I've really learned to appreciate those. And now I'll study coaching videos and be like, wow, this is is like, this is amazing. But uh, at the time it was just, um, I call it like white moments or transcendent moments where like you're like there's no contradictions in your head and there's no self-consciousness and you just kind of lose yourself in the flow of the game. And then I had so many like games where it was like, okay, I, I, um, I didn't feel like I played them. It was just like, okay, my body is moving and like I'm in harmony with all these other guys and like we're winning. And, and then you go to the locker room afterwards and it's like, 
you know, did was that me or was that just like kind of the flow of the universe? And then the, um, yeah, it's kind of like you lose yourself in, in the game. You just said that you were never a big film guy, but now you go back and watch it and like, you know, it, it, it hits you much more. I've always had this, I've always had this question. I've never asked like an actual athlete. So I remember when I was a kid and I played soccer, nowhere near like, you know, very good at it. But, you know, my coach would sit there and just like so earnestly like diagram the play and tell me exactly what to do and blah, 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 blah. blah. And we'd all sit there and nod and nod. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what the coach was saying. (laughs) And I distinct, I played soccer through my forties and until I got injured. And I remember my 40th birthday, somebody explained to me something and I was like, I get it now. <laughs> I was like, I'm ready to listen because I don't like being told what to do. So like the whole time I was, you know, listening to my coaches, I like wasn't paying, like I didn't know what they were talking. They're drawing all these things. I'm like, I have no idea. So like when you're like mm-hmm. a seventh grader and your coach is like drawing up the X's, I was watching this like, you know, they had a huddle for the 1998, you know, playoffs and like the coach was like diagramming the thing and everybody's saying that I'm like, it just looks like scribbles all over the thing. Like, does that all make sense to you? Do like, do you play so much that that actually makes sense? Or is that just something to like make the coach, you know, feel like they're really rallying the troops? It is, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I should admit this on a podcast, but all, all that is, is just a game of tic-tac-toe. And I knew it. That's all it is. <laughs> but no, it's a, uh, I figured it's, people well, I mean, understood yeah. it more than I did, but I was just always like, like, especially when I see, you know, old, you know, coaches with the younger kids and like just mm-hmm. earnestly saying, and you're going to go here and you're going to go here and so-and-so is going to come back here. And then and this thing, I'm always just thinking, how much of that is getting through? <laughs> yeah. With youth sports, you, you sometimes got to wonder, because I think kids like always don't have the uh, courage to be like, yo, coach, I don't understand that. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of coaches, I think, believe that they're coaching NBA players. So they drop these really complicated NBA sets when really they should just be diagramming a pick and roll or some sort of back screen or something. But I think if, um, I mean, that's a skill itself. So I think if, if you have a good coach who can actually sit down and say, Hey, here's what this X means. Here's what this number one means. Here's what this squiggly line means. And like you are number two, but like correspond yourself to this number two on the court and move. Maybe not in like a hyphenated line, but move in a, like that direction and see what happens when someone else moves in this direction. Well, I uh, you also brought up your teammates and you uh, have had as one of your teammates in high school, one of the Portland Trailblazers who we got the pleasure of having on our team this year. You actually attended school with Carmelo Anthony for a little while. Uh, can you tell us? some of your memories of him. And what I really am curious about is like, as a kid, could you recognize in each other, like where, where guys were going or, you know, who, who had it with the bunny ears thing, you know, who was going to make it. Mm -hmm. So I was never one of those guys that could like look at somebody else and be like, wow, that person's person's amazing. Carmelo was might, might've been one of the exceptions and that he showed up and like, he had a lot of uh, hype to him and he was just, six eight and um you know playing the three spot and he was he was really good and um you know he was it was him and lebron that year were the two headliners for the high school basketball platform and um so whether i whether i could recognize it or not it was pretty obvious that he was 
he was a great player. Did you, um, when, I mean, like, when you were going to a school like that, that is so focused on, you know, basketball success, like, did you have time to just be a kid or were you already like a businessman? I think uh, if anyone wasn't a businessman, it would have been a Carmelo. But uh, <laughs> this, this, the school is set up really well. So it's a very grounded place. And like there's uh, it's not like a, uh, you know, like a I don't want to name any universities, but like they, there's everyone has to do all their homework and there's no it's it, they, they, the basketball players do live in a separate dorm and they do get to fly around the country and play all these games. And there are def, definitely a lot of opportunities for basketball players at Oak Hill that the regular students don't have. But um, they do a, a really good job of making sure that everyone is is staying grounded and um, keeping their perspective and putting in the work. And, um, you know, at least when I was there, like top to bottom, like every every player was treated the same by the, the coaching staff and. It was a, a, a you know a really good place to develop. It really helped me get ready for Davidson. Did you get to just hang out and have fun and be teenagers? Yeah, for sure. I think <laughs> probably too much fun sometimes. <laughs> too much teenage fun. But it was it was you know there's it is a school. It's like you know it's it's kind of like out in the woods a little bit, so it keeps you away from the distraction, and then you kind of have to entertain yourselves. Um, and then, you know, a few stories are coming to mind. I'd have to run them by <laughs> to some of my teammates before I shared them. But you know, I think everyone can use their imagination and think of what. Did you wear uniforms? We did, yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't have known whether or not Carmelo was going to develop into the fashion icon that he is now because y'all were wearing the same uniform. We all wore Flynn and O'Hara, this ghastly, like olive green colored uh collared shirts polo we had a white collared shirt it was uh, a blazer these pleated khakis which uh you know a number of i think i, I don't i don't know the, the, those uniforms would be featured in gq but <laughs> maybe that's why carmelo became the fashion icon he is yeah maybe he was just he like, was so ashamed by flynn and o'hara that he was he, held back for so long yeah. Do you have memories of uh, like tournaments or, you know, playing other players who, you know, went on to have careers or like fun memories of just like taking the ball from somebody or <laughs> went on to have a big career? Yeah. So, I mean, we played LeBron's team, which was a ton of fun. And that was uh, LeBron was a ju- junior at the time and the game I think we won 66-63. LeBron had 36, Carmelo had 33. It was kind of like a one-on-one matchup, and it was, it was so cool. Um, we lost we, – we were by far the best team in the country. We lost one game in California, I think to, to Matter Day. I think they had Josh Childress at the time who, for some of our younger listeners, he was a, a pretty big prospect. He ended up going to Stanford. I think I'm getting the story right. Um, but I always, I always remember that game because if we hadn't lost that game, we would have been national champions. And the, we ended up finishing number two, and that was kind of like the only opportunity that I'd ever have to be a national champion in the United States of, of anything. I was a national champion in Europe for some uh, a country, but not in the United States. And so I, I think about that game sometimes. 
Well, I've, Josh I've never been the national champion of anything. At least you got a European championship. So you got that on me for sure. It was a, it was, it was a Hungarian <laughs> national championship, but I'm a, I'm a count. So your team played against LeBron. Like, where was it? It was in New Jersey. I think it was at uh, an NBA arena. I'm not sure. There was, was a full of people. I think so. I, I mean, it must have been. I, I don't remember the like the stands, but. Like, okay, it was obviously a big school, and so a lot of our games were. I'm not trying to like sound like I had too much to do with this. People came to watch Carmelo, but um, and a few of our other guys, but uh, most of our games were pretty packed. It was it was always a fun environment to play in. Yeah, I just hard to imagine like what it must have been like as a teenager watching all of this, like. You know, I I have three boys. I know what teenage boys are like. They're not the most observant group. <laughs> and so, like, asking somebody to recall, you know, asking somebody to, to recall this thing that happened all these all these years later. I mean, it must have all just been a blur, like, hard to pick out, like, specific things that happened when there's just so much going on. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So was, that was a time, like, I, I didn't know what to expect. And so it was like... I didn't have like the, the pre preformative memories that would like create a foundation for the actual events. And so then it was just kind of like going in and like, it was a uh, very somatic experience. A lot of times the noise, the pressure, the game itself, it was, it was a lot. So let's move on and uh, talk about college. I've always been curious again, what it's like to be a, a division one player. Like, my the extent of my exposure to division one players was I used to eat in the same dining hall as the Oregon duck football players. So that was the <laughs> extent of my exposure. Um, you, you know, went to Davidson for four years, mid major, um, you know, as a student athlete, how did you, how do you balance like being a student and an athlete? Can you really do that? You know, how hard was that? I think it's I think it's possible. I was definitely more on the like athlete side than the student athlete side. And uh, Davidson is a really challenging school, so and they they don't let you skimp on any of the academics. So I definitely worked hard as as an athlete, but in terms of like where my mind was, it was definitely with basketball most of, most of the time. Uh, I think everyone has such a different experience with college. So there's some aspects of college that I really love. My senior year is maybe my favorite year of all time. It was just so much fun. And then, like my first three years were really challenging uh, in terms of like a mental health perspective and trying to understand, like, wow, look, this this huge national infrastructure of college sports. Like, I don't get it. And like I, I, um, I had trouble, you know, I talked about when I love the game, like losing myself in the moment and these white moments. And I had, I had a lot of trouble doing that in my first three years. And then I know that, um, you know, my experience would be different from the experience of someone like, um, you know, Zion Williamson or, uh, you know, any of these, these major college stars. And then you know, my experience is also different from, you know, someone who, you know, maybe goes to just, just happens to get a scholarship and walk, or walks on at a school and uh, shows up for practice for three hours each day, but then can go and, and do other things. So I was, I was come, kind of uh, somewhere in the middle on that, I think. What was your favorite subject? My favorite subject then was, 
I liked all the subjects, <laughs> but probably psychology. I think I was trying to figure myself out. And so then I was naturally drawn to the psychological literature. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit more uh, about that. I said at the beginning when I introduced you that this was uh, a really kind of an illuminating book for me to just like kind of under because you write, you know, very honestly about what your mental health situation was like. And as a fan of the game, like I understand, I understand that your lives are fundamentally different than mine as a fan, you know, the pressure that athletes go under. And, you know, if you have, you know, other mental health challenges to layer on top of all of that pressure, it must be, you know, quite difficult. And in the book, you talk about sort of just exploring yourself and trying to figure out what makes you function. What can you what can you share with us about, you know, that awareness that you started to understand in like um college and then as you became a pro of of your mental health and how how also did that kind of intersect with your basketball career Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's there's a article i read recently that talks about how the transition of the way we talk about mental health as uh, a nation and so whereas maybe 30 years ago everything was thrown under the rug and we don't talk about it now uh there's this almost this over-identification, over-identification with your mental illness. And so then that's just kind of like a, a precursor to, to let you know that I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm over-identifying with my uh, mental mental illness. But uh, as I played, I, str- I struggled a lot with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, um, you know, it's a, a mental condition marked by obsessive thoughts and then compulsions that are performed to try and get try and get rid of those thoughts and actually when when i played i didn't really have any idea what ocd was i just thought this is just the way i think and that goes back to what i was talking about preparing kids better or preparing younger athletes better for when they get older and i think uh, mental health education can be part of that the statistics on this kind of thing are um still very raw like there hasn't been a lot of real honest research into mental health in sports but the research that has been done is kind of um eye-opening in terms of the rates of mental illness in athletes and particularly competitive athletes so athletes uh, abuse alcohol to a significantly greater degree than any other subset of um you know division or Division one student athletes, excuse me, abuse alcohol to a greater degree than any other subset of uh, a college life. Um, you know, rates of mental illness have been shown to be you know, three or four times as uh, higher in athletes, uh, super competitive athletes, than in student or athletes or students that don't play play sports. And um, you know, eventually, I did understand that you know, getting help would be a really good good thing for me, and I was able to. You know, reach out and start seeing a therapist and start reading about uh, OCD and and stuff like that. And, but it was it was kind of too late. And then because um, you know part of that journey was okay, I, I need to get away from basketball for a second. And then so I retired from basketball. And then if I if I had known like all the stuff I know about me now, like I would for sure still be playing. Really? Or or wow. sitting in quarantine sitting in quarantine over in Europe. But like uh, it's at some just my love for the game since I've, since I've learned about myself and like it found a new foundation is just, this is, it's very high. And like, I miss the, I miss performing in front of 20,000 people and just the, the pressure and the preparation and all that stuff is just, 
um, so much fun when you know how to handle it. Wow. And you feel like if you had known more about yourself earlier, then you would have stuck with it, kept playing longer. Your career yeah. would have gone on longer. As long as, long as like, my body would have held up, I think it, I, like maybe now, I guess I'd be retiring somewhere around here. But wow. it was just such a, a fun life in Europe. And I mean, they, they, pay, they pay you to play basketball. <laughs> I mean, like, and to like get yourself in really good shape and to get, you know, lift weights. Like that's, that's a pretty good gig. And I was grateful, grateful to have it. I don't want to give away all the stories in your book, but you got any favorite, uh, you know, stories that you tell around the campfire <laughs> about playing in Europe. So there's, there's one, I played in Czech Republic, my, my uh, second half of my first year. And then when I arrived, the general manager, who was kind of an interesting guy, in our contract, he had included a, a no drinking clause. And so then um, it was basically just this clause that if he didn't like the way we were playing and wanted to cut us, then um, you know he, he could just claim we'd been drinking and, and we'd violate it. And we were drinking a lot. We were a really young team. And uh, you know Czech Republic has a lot of like, delicious, cheap beers and uh, you know, drinking beer was a, a way we like to unwind after games, but we, uh, we were also very conscious of, uh, this clause in our contract. And so we had this kind of like speakeasy that we, um, would attend. It was like kind of on the outskirts of, of town and you had to like sneak down the stairwell to get to there. And there's just two, uh, owners that really took care of us. And it was just so much, so much fun. It's very, very Czech thing. One guy played the accordion a lot and, uh, it was, I just have a lot of fun, fun memories of that. And then the general manager, I'm sure he knew because he apparently had these moles that not on the team, but uh, like fans or like whatever. And then if they saw us out drinking, they were supposed to let him know. And then he'd have like something to hold against us if, if he needed, needed to. But you didn't so, get caught. Uh, you know, there's one time <laughs> we had. <laughs> We'd had a big game and the team had gone out. And then I think the, the next morning you could smell it on my breath. Like for sure, for sure tell. And then, so the GM had called me to his office for, for some reason. And then, but he, I think he was just so happy that we, we'd won this big game and I'd played well that he didn't say anything. And wins never, help a lot, huh? <laughs> what's that? Wins can help a lot. Winning, winning solves everything. Right? <laughs> Most things. Um, just to rewind one question back to um, back to the mental health, you know, I said that I read the book through the lens of a parent and I also read it through the lens of a fan. And one of the things that I wonder about frequently, you know, as we as athletes come out talking about their struggles with mental health, as I think, what can we as fans do? Is there anything that fans can do to help? Like, to, I mean, I, I mean, I know that you know, I'm just like one, you know, insignificant person who watches it or whatever. But I guess maybe another way to ask it is what do you wish fans knew or understood that, um, you know, could make things better or easier for some of the athletes? You know, I was thinking right there as you were talking, like I was trying to come up with like a joke or something that, that fans could do differently. But I don't, I don't think fans are the, are any, have any sort of um, problem. I think, uh, 99. I'm sure there's fans that aren't great, but 99% of fans are, you know, just enjoy the game like yourself. And um, like I'm definitely a fan now. But in terms of you know uh, helping the players, I think, I mean, just like a bad relationship is not necessarily the relationship; it's the inner children who come 
uh, with the adults having the relationship. I think having a good relationship with the game and a good mental health uh, narrative with the game as an as a uh, older player starts with a younger player. So in my book, I give a few suggestions about how we can change the the youth sporting landscape to help create better adults. And so these um, suggestions have been met with a lot of uh, skepticism <laughs> and even, you know, laughter. But I, I do believe in them and I included them. I thought hard about them and, uh, to, to put them in the book. And so the, the first suggestion would be, and I think is the most important, would be to eliminate scorekeeping and stat keeping in youth leagues until at least you know, middle school or maybe even high school. And I understand how crazy this sounds to the listeners, but, you know, hear me out. And so young athletes would you know, play for a coach and would wear uniforms and play games and commit fouls. But there, there'd be no sco- uh, operative scoreboard in the, in the gym on site. And then um, ideally the, the primary emphasis in you know, such a no score, no stats league would be on the experience of playing and not on winning or filling up a, uh, a stat sheet. And, you know, kids would be given the freedom to experiment and fail. And I think we underestimate how like important those ingredients are to um, helping people grow and, and being able to process failure. We don't allow kids to, to fail these days in, in any way. And people, you know, when I say that, people respond and say, well, you know, the scoreboard is an indication that they failed. If you don't have uh, more points than the other team, you're going to, that's that's failure. You can't lose from that. And then I say, like, if that's the only way we judge um, failure and success, then that's a, a, a very good indication of why we should we should uh, think about what we can do. Uh, the uh, you know the, in this situation, the kids would have a lot of freedom to just immerse themselves in the flow of the game, which is how games are won anyway. No one wins games by thinking about them. You you think in preparation and you just let go in the game and. Um, you'd eliminate the pressure of having young people prove themselves via stats and wins before they're ready, before they even know who would be winning and who would would be losing. I mean, scoring is still fun. Yeah, like it you, would like scoring could still be really fun. For sure, <laughs> it just the, the end it, score wouldn't matter. Like you you know when you put the ball in the basket that the ball mm-hmm. went in the basket, and yay, that's awesome. It's awesome, and even if even if the the pellet of food doesn't come out, that that rat in the the cage is going to keep pressing that pellet and it's going to feel good. So I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's one. Do we, do we have time to go into the other two or do you want to? Sure. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask you about the yacht. Okay. <laughs> go ahead finish it out. So, the, I mean, the second suggestion would just be to eliminate permanent rosters and in, in youth leagues. And so the, what I mean by that is that in most uh, youth leagues around the country now, we have um, teams that are often divided by neighborhood or by talent level, which is you know, really great in terms of uh, you know, practicing and location, uh, being near a gym and so on. But um, it also creates this like, us versus them mentality. And like, it's very you know, sectional and um, you know, the us versus them mentality is, is a plague on the, the globe right now. And so th- the idea would be on you know, pr- practice with whomever is best to practice with. But then on game days, you get all these different – when people come to together at a gym anyway, you can break teams up and have people from this neighborhood play with people from this neighborhood, with people from this neighborhood, people with different uh, demographics who don't look the same, who don't talk the same, whose parents drive different cars, who might not have the same number of parents, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's just um, 
helps create this idea of, of cooperation as opposed to just being entrenched in your your uh, street lines. And then the third set suggestion would be to, uh, you know, kind of tweak the way coaches coach. And, uh, you know, the way we coach now is, uh, you know, coaches tend to like micromanage and like you said, like draw these like intricate plays that you know, look like the Rorschach test and no one can figure them out. And it's just kind of like this blind submission. But, you know, if, if we can learn to, this is something I, I try to work on actively with my own players is like work on empowering players, you know, um, like Steve Kerr did with the Warriors. He handed them his players the clipboard. It was like, you you guys coach tonight. You you draw a play tonight. And then the players have an, a much better understanding of, of um, you know, the game as, as opposed to just like blindly following. And then they can also, um, you know, learn self-initiative much better and leadership and uh, decision-making, using their voice better. And I think a lot of the reason coaches don't allow this is because they're like afraid of losing their, their power and control. And so like just tweaking the way we can get coaches to coach, more mindfulness stuff, more self-awareness stuff, just growing a complete human being as opposed to just the sliver of a human being who happens to you know, dribble this, this way well or shoot this way well. Does that make sense? It does. And I have to say that like, you're not going to get a lot of argument for me because all of that is, is, is very much aligned with kind of how of my sort of general philosophy. (laughs) So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be very good at pushing back on it. Um, But what I will ask is like, do you see like new ways of doing things happen? Like in over the years that you have been coaching, or maybe looking into the future, can you see that maybe like all of the, I don't think all of these things would happen, certainly not right away, but do you see positive signs that you feel like, you know, things could be going in a better direction? So I, I do think the narrative is is changing. And so the, we've, we've seen so many people coming out and talking about mental health, for example. I, I do sometimes get a little worried that people, like I said earlier, people can over-identify with like a mental illness or use that mental illness as a shield or an excuse not to work hard. So there's, there's like this balance that I think we have to find where we give the people that need help the courage to say, I need help. And then also the resources to get that help. And then just, just finding this healthy dialogue about it. So that it becomes like, okay, this is, this is part of who I am, but it doesn't need to define me. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I believe that certain tea, and this is just purely from observation and not knowing anything, but I feel like certain teams do well when they have a really good handle on letting players come in and be who they are and finding whatever it is that makes players successful and then letting them do that rather than trying to like shoehorn them into this is the system we have, this is always the system we've had and you need to learn how to do it. The first, the first rule of coaching, like I've, I've figured out, is know your personnel. Mm-hmm. And then if, if like you got to, you got to know if, if this person needs to self-express, like you better give that person an, uh, a window to self-express, like a, a place where they can feel comfortable being themselves. If another person needs, uh, you know, a little bit more discipline, you better give that person that discipline. And then, you know, hoping everybody grows, and that's that's why a coach is so important. But uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with your statement there. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like, yeah, uh, because if if they're trying to, if they're trying really hard to be something that they're not, then all their energy is 
and spent trying to be something that they're not rather than exactly. learning the thing that, exactly. they're, than, yeah. than, that they're learning. Yeah. Okay. Last question, pivoting a little bit at the, towards the end of your book, you have a couple paragraphs where you just like casually mention that in uh, 2016, you were actually uh, during the Olympics in Rio, you spent time on the cruise ship that the uh, bas- men's basketball team was living on. And I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> so Tell me a little about that experience. Yeah, it was it was amazing. That was I spent a week on the ship. Uh, a friend of mine was the one of the assistant managers for the <clears throat> excuse me for the team, and so got to go down and stay. And it was that was part of like my year that the basketball guys were rewarding me with with uh, this reimmersion. So spent a week on the ship watching them win the gold medal, and then. Um, Got to have this really immersive experience at the All-Star Game in New Orleans the that following February. And then that June, I got to sit courtside at the um, NBA Finals Game 3 when in 2017, I think it was Kevin Durant's first year, when he hit that, sh- that pull-up three over LeBron with 45 seconds to go. And if you watch, if you watch that uh, TV footage, you can see there's one guy standing up like on the, on the far baseline of where I was sitting. And when the shot went in, celebrating because I was obviously Curry is a Davidson guy, so I was rooting for him. And then you can you can see me in the background, like everyone else, like slapping their heads, and then here I am, like like pumping my fist. But yeah, the yacht was uh, it was maybe the most amazing basketball experience I've ever had. It was um, obviously very luxurious, and the, the, all the guys were so cool. The, the women's so like team. how many people were on board? There was the uh, women's team, the men's team support staff and then like random people like myself like the significant others of or friends of, of people but it was and there was like an, actually another cruise ship that was like next to the the team's cruise ship that other people stayed on but i was too cool for that oh my God. <laughs> I'm just so, like did they have uh was it like a i don't know cruise ships very well all my whole experience of the of cruise ships is what i saw on the love boat so <laughs> was it like one of those big princess lines one was no, it like a big no. yacht Did, was there a basketball court on it it was like a big yacht i think and the rooms were pretty small i think that it was so small that it it was like they couldn't legally ferry anybody across the ocean so like when the, when they bought the ship like they had to only the crew could be on the yacht to for it to cross from either Spain or Italy or wherever it came from. So it wasn't. It was. I mean, it was definitely. You looked at it and you say, okay, that's a gigantic yacht, or that's a like a, a really small cruise ship. It was like it was somewhere in between there. Were the beds really long for all the super tall players? There were some complaints about the size of, of both the rooms and the beds. It was not your, uh, your Soho or anything like that. Your old high school buddy must have been on there, and that was his fourth Olympics. Did you talk to Carmelo? Yeah, I got a chance to. I got to attend a couple of practices and um, you know be on the court afterwards, and so I got to talk to him. And um, he was probably better dressed than he was in high school. He was. I mean, it was after a workout when we had like our like one longer conversation. He was wearing a similarish cutoff t shirt, basketball shorts, but he was you know was really nice. Didn't have to say hi to me or anything and he was he's a he's a good guy what was the food like on this ship really good 
Really good. Was there like a buffet or how did that, how did that work? I told you I had lots of questions about the there there was like a a butler. (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to be saying this, but there was like a a butler for like every four rooms that would like be outside the door. And so if you needed, if you wanted to say like some, uh, like a salad, you you just open your door like, Hey, Hey butler, like, can you get me a salad? And then like they would, so it's like room service, basically. It's kind of room service. Like the, the butlers, they were called butlers. Was, I thought that was really, yeah. really cool. Like on the love boat, they used to have like the captain's table and you'd like go sit at the captain's table and they would serve you and it'd be really fancy. Did they have anything like that? Uh, Did there was like a team, room, a team room, which I never went into. I imagine they had like a, uh, a setup. But uh, anytime you wanted, you could go to the restaurant and order some food. Uh-huh. And how about games? You you went to the games. Yeah, I went to um, the three medal medal games. So the quarterfinals, the semis, and then the finals when they beat Serbia. And it's just the, the final over Serbia. I've never been, you know, like so many uh, thinking people like I have, like, um, like I'm definitely an American, but like I, like there's, I, I find it sometimes like as much as I love, because, because I love America, like I, sometimes criticize it but like that time i was just so just like so proud to be an american like when we just crushed serbia you know like it was awesome it was awesome yeah it kind of folds into some of the stories that you talk about in your book about you know competition and sports and what we do sports for for and like getting caught up in that like even though like you're sitting here thinking like oh you know young players we're not going to keep score and da 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 but like when you're sitting there watching your national team play for the gold medal it's like a whole different (laughs) so awesome it's a whole different ballgame oh that's awesome well i kept you a little bit longer than i said that i was going to but i want to thank you so much for uh talking to me about your book and just kind of about your past and your story it's been fascinating for me uh you know you tell people how they can find it so you can find it on amazon it's called the bounce and the echo dying to love a game you can also buy it through the publisher at if you search atm publishing the bounce and the echo ian johnson you can find it there um, thank you for having me on, Tara. It's been wonderful. I attended my first Portland game last uh, last fall, and the Portland fans. I've been to a number of NBA games in different cities, and Portland fans might be the best, most loving fans of any NBA arena I've been to. I, I definitely understand why people uh, speak so highly of them. Well, that warms my heart. <laughs> Today is the anniversary of Dame's shot against Houston. Nice. So a couple of weeks ago, it was the anniversary of the shot against OKC. But in Portland, we have two Dame shots that we get to celebrate. And so today is the Houston one. So I think the game is probably going to be on tonight for us to go watch again. Another game that the Blazers win. Did they win when you saw them um, at the They at won, the yeah. So it was, it, was, it was like the they were like three and six at the time. It was like a really rainy and cold Sunday afternoon and then showed up at 530. The arena was already sold out. And then the um, it was, Dame had... Uh, they played the Hawks and I think Dame had 30 something and they got their first home win of the season last year. 
Yeah, it was, awesome. it was it was a it was a rough season this season. You'll have to come back. I would love to meet you in person next time you come back. I would love to come back. Definitely look look me up. So I'm gonna uh, wind us up here. You can find the Blazers Edge podcast at blazersedge.com wherever. Also wherever you get the Blazers, wherever you get your podcast, you can find me at TCB Biggs on Twitter. Danny Morang will be back with us next time. You can find him all over Twitter and on NBC Sports Northwest. I want to thank Ian again for joining me today. It was really fun and uh, everybody stay safe and we will talk to you later.